นโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดามังสังขังนามัสามิ
What does it feel like in my stomach? What does it feel like in my heart? What does the whole body-mind feel about giving? And whatever the response is, I'm saying that, that we are in a better position to trust that if we've given some time to the fact that we don't know. If we push past the not knowing, maybe our intuition is going to be biased and we can't really trust it. So uh, a lot of people are keen to say, you know, say, well, it feels right in my heart. But sometimes we're a bit too quick to just take sides with what our, you know, some sort of conditioned emotional reaction to some situation. That's not necessarily a wise intuition. So to learn to be able to responsibly or wisely trust in our intuition is skillful, an aspect of training, to give ourselves the chance to just feel not knowing. And then, and then we can let our intuition guide us. And this is not just with regards to, to giving, but in all sorts of areas of our life. Uh, our intuition can be the guiding principle, but we want to be careful that the intuition is not naive. Um, wishy-washy intuition so the other thing I wanted to say about giving generosity was that it is something that we are encouraged in this path of practice to cultivate um, as a force of goodness traditionally classically referred to as dana paramita the ten paramitas that the Buddha perfected I'll try and go through them I usually forget one Dana Paramita, Sila Paramita, Nikama Paramita, Aditana Paramita, Panya Paramita, Satya Paramita, Kanti Paramita, Upeka, Metta, which one did I miss out? Satya, bad sign. No, I got there eventually, Satya Paramita. Did I get them all? Nobody's going to call me on it anyway. So these are the ten forces of goodness that the Buddha cultivated in many lifetimes. And the accumulation force of goodness basically was the context in which he was able to encounter the habit of denial, which you call ignorance, and be able to break through it. Yeah. And not only that, but because he had this accumulated, these accumulated perfections or forces of goodness, he also had the, uh, the ability to transmit this teaching in a way that lasted a very long time. So there can be, this is just a little bit of theory, but maybe useful that there can be uh, people who, who realize uh, the path of, uh, of the, and fruit of the uh, arahantship, complete freedom from conceit and ignorance and, and all the lower fetters and, and be completely free. However, they may not have accumulated the same paramita that the Buddha did. So some of these arahants you know, recorded how even though they're free from any, uh, any fault, can be quite obnoxious persons. And there's this one character there that uh, that uh, was apparently, according to what the Buddha had to say, but he said in many lifetimes before he'd been uh, a very rich uh, Brahmin and uh, had lots of servants and was just used to bossing everybody around. Very rich, very powerful, and just uh, an obnoxious so-and-so for many lifetimes. And in his last lifetime, he uh, attained to arahantship, complete freedom from all ignorance, complete freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion, but his behavior was still obnoxious. So there's no guarantee that just because somebody's heart is pure that their tone of speech or, or, or all aspects of their character are going to be uh, beautiful and appealing. It will be free from moral blame. 
Uh, certainly they won't act out of any impulse of dishonesty or intention to cause harm. But it doesn't mean to say that they're going to be uh, all-rounded, lovely, agreeable personalities. So that's just a little aside about the accumulation of um, the forces of goodness. But the first one, Dana Baramita, is something the Buddha uh, encouraged uh, us to really work on um, throughout our lives, uh, whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever our station in life, wherever we're at with our practice, to never miss an opportunity for cultivating generosity. Now, with regards to this person asking the question here, you know, when should I give? Should I give when I just feel right? Should I give when I've got resources? Should I give when I'm feeling pressure to give? Or should I wait? Well, having started, as I said, with not knowing, then listening to our intuition, but also bearing in mind that sometimes in the cultivation of goodness, it's uh, in the cultivation of generosity, it's also helpful to, uh, as I said before, to pretend to mindfully pretend, what's sometimes called acting as if. Like with the example of, of trying to establish a conscious communication with some of the tricky moods that we have to endure, you know, we, we pretend that we're pleased to see them. And so we manage to actually meet them without uh, ill will. And, uh, and so we say welcome, even though we don't mean it. Well, likewise, with generosity, sometimes, even though we're not necessarily feeling very generous, just to give offers a, a little, little moment of opening, of, of releasing us from the painful contraction of selfishness. You know, we so often get caught into our old habits, our old conditioning, our old patterns of self-contraction, me, and my problems and my rights, and these days with the the um, idolizing of, of individuality, you know, me and mine and everything that relates to me and mine, that uh, the contracted ego becomes even more intensely painful and uh, the world is uh, giving off the message that this is totally okay and normal. Uh, so selfishness is, is uh, even more um, <coughs> difficult, difficult to deal with. So sometimes just to be able to just get a little break from it, uh, a small gesture of generosity can, can help. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things that I personally practice and have done for many years and I encourage people to do is the, the, uh, at the end of the day, the uh, ritual practice of the dedication of punya. And as an act of generosity, the very last thing before going to bed at night just for a few moments to reflect on any, uh, any uh, wholesomeness that we might have generated through the day. Like we chant in the evening. In fact, I've been meaning to uh, chant it every evening, but I forget. So could you remind me this evening? Uh, the dedication of blessings. As a ritual statement, or this, like just this act of giving at the end of the day. I mean, I do it privately, personally, and I, I encourage everybody to do this, uh, just before going to bed to go and bow to the shrine and, and uh, just for a moment reflect on any goodness that we've accumulated today to give it away. Mm-hmm. Through the forces of goodness of my practice, may all beings be well. And we, in our traditional chanting, we go through our teachers and our parents and beings we like, we don't like. And, well, I have my own list that I've come up with. And, but every evening, I, whether I'm here or I'm staying in somebody's house or in a hotel or 
camping on a beach somewhere, whatever, before I go to bed, I'll always bow and make this dedication of punya as the last act. Because it, it helps the heart. It helps. Um, yeah, it, uh, this, the, the, the force of contraction, of selfishness, of self-referencing is very painful. And so this is a counterforce, if you like. Now, you could say, well, you know, if we're really interested in anatta, you know, there's no, no beings, there's no self, there's no body. And, well, if we're really established in the amata dhamma and, and already there, well, then that's true. But the reality we live in is that most of the time we're not there, that we do assume the, uh, the, the, the apparent solidity of a me and a you and, and community and so on. So it can be very skillful for oneself and for the community and, for the country and for the world, and I think for all beings. And, and so I, I do. I include all beings, all directions throughout all time. May whatever goodness may have been accumulated through my effort today, uh, may all beings benefit from this. And, and it doesn't matter you, you know, what a lousy sort of a day. You might think, oh, I've done nothing today. I didn't meditate. And, and you know, I'm compromised by precepts here and there. Well, even if you've been a complete hopeless case all day, well, there's bound to have been a few moments just a few moments when you weren't as bad as you could have been. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? I, I'm, not, I'm not totally joking here. You know, because no matter how sloppy we might have been, that to some degree, you know, because of our commitment to practice, we will have made some effort. So if that effort, the law of karma, means there will have been some punya generated. And that's just how it is. You know, you make some good effort, there is the accumulation of punya, wholesome potential. Uh, we don't have to be too afraid of getting materialistic about this. I don't think that's our problem. Uh, we, we, it's it's uh, perhaps more the problem that we dismiss this stage of practice and want to you know, attain to ultimate realization of emptiness of all conditions or some such thing. Uh, whereas actually the cultivation of, of dana paramita, which was the last of the ten paramitas the Buddha uh, perfected before his enlightenment, is something that we can always do. And so even if we're not necessarily keen on uh, giving materially or in a position to give materially, we can always give away the accumulated goodness of our life. And I think as a ritual, it's something worth doing at the end of it every day. This evening we're going to remember to do that. And then also, just again, in, in, in this exercise of acting as if, to consciously give, understanding the dynamic, you know, this, these are, this is spiritual language, not something that our society is generally very clear on. But to understand uh, other societies, uh, particularly Buddhist societies, are much more clear about this. That to choose to do something good uh, is beneficial. Yeah. We, we can be afraid that, oh, we might get too pleased with ourselves. Or, but, well, you know, that's always good to bear in mind, but we don't want to dwell on that. Yeah, the thing is that we need to cultivate this goodness in our lives for our own well-being and for the well-being of all beings. And so uh, small gestures of goodness, you know, like just paying attention to whether the birds are getting some food or, or the cat or, or, you know, or did you take Sam out for a walk yet? Oh, you take him out, you know. It's a, uh, that's, that's the dog we're talking about here. Um. <laughs> I hope somebody's taking Sam out for a walk. Is that... Anyway, so the cult conscious cultivation of goodness, um, even if we don't necessarily feel like it. But here, of course, the, you know, we maybe come up with some resistance and 
we've experienced, you know, phony, pretentious generosity or people who've demonstrated virtue and that's, that's been tainted and so on. Well, we want to be aware of that. That doesn't still negate the, uh, the truth of these things. So, anyway, so that was just a little bit more on the matter of, of generosity and hope that's helpful. Dear Rajamanendo, the quality of not-self, anatta, has a broader application than the quality of anicca and dukkha. In fact, these two applied only to conditioned phenomena, sankhara. But the uh, first applied to the entire existing world, all things dhamma are not-self. Oh, yes, indeed. Nice. Exactly what the Buddha said. That's also why last night I um, I mentioned in the uh, Pali that uh, I quoted uh, Sabe Sankara Anicca, Sabe Sankara Dukkha, Sabe Dhamma Anatta. And uh, although we're not doing the chanting in the morning here in Pali, but it is something that we would normally chant. Uh, Sabe Sankara Anicca, Sabe Dhamma Anatta, something that is kind of um, the basis of, of uh, these teachings that we're investigating. And what, what's really being pointed to there is that with anatta, not self, um, that, uh, that pertains to not just the sankhita dhamma, not just the, as we, as we mean, not just the conditioned realm, but also the unconditioned realm, because there's a danger there that beings are practicing for realization, realizing the unconditioned, unborn, unmade, uh, the ultimate reality, and with the idea that this is some sort of an ultimate self. And so the Buddha pointed out quite specifically that even this, even the unconditioned reality, is not self. There's no self can be established on any level. But also it's pointing out that the, um, the unconditioned reality is not the same as the conditioned reality with regards to Anicca and Dukkha. The unconditioned reality is not Dukkha. Yeah. The unconditioned reality is not an Icha. So, sabe dhamma anatati, that all conditioned and unconditioned phenomena are not self. Uh, it's, it's important bit of uh, pariyati dhamma, important bit of information. Now, in terms of uh, practice, this investigation of one's, for instance, looking at the investigation of anatta and thinking, well, maybe this is this is the ultimate door to insight. Maybe this is more ultimate than investigation of dukkha or investigation of anicca. Uh, that doesn't accord with what the Buddha had to say about it. But in terms of practice, wherever we're coming from, like if that's where we are coming from, we say, well, I want the I want the ultimate doorway into dhamma. So, well, who wants the ultimate doorway? Who wants to be ultimate? Who wants? Now, that is really, I, mean, I think this is absolutely brilliant. If you can get a handle on this, who's wanting? Whatever's going on, if we can get a handle on that, it'll take us deeper. Whatever's going on, if there's any disturbance in the mind, 
there's going to be wanting involved. Now we could investigate the wanting in terms of impermanence, seeing the, the coming and going of wanting to see that all wanting is conditioned and that might release us from the identification with the wanting. We could investigate the irritation of wanting. You see how wanting is, is painful. It's not what it pretends to be and that could release us. Or we could investigate who's wanting yeah, because with wanting there's got to be a self isn't there? there's me wanting and if we can get an angle on that get a handle on that then we can let go at that level it's very helpful with regards to the amata dhamma or the unconditioned dhamma well we don't need to worry about that if you already know that well then there's no question with any of this stuff anyway so whether it's with anicca or dukkha or nanata, with impermanence, unsatisfactoriness or not self that we're investigating, it's with regards to the sankhata dhamma or the conditioned phenomena that we're investigating. Again, even with nanata, it's with the conditioned phenomena that we're investigating. We're not investigating uh, the amata dhamma, the unconditioned phenomena. I mean, if you do know the unconditioned phenomena, well, you don't have these sort of questions. Right? reminds me of an interesting conversation that I witnessed Ajahn Chah having about this matter when um, one of the women who became one of the first nuns in our community, Pat Stoll was I think her name, she became Sister Rochana and um, along with Sundara and Chandasiri and Tanisara, uh, seems like many years ago now. Anyway, when she was Pat Stoll, she was out in Thailand and meeting with Ajahn Chah. And she asked Ajahn Chah, she said, if the Buddha taught anatta, how can you practice samadhi meditation? Because to concentrate, there's got to be somebody to concentrate. Uh, oh, here's a sharp woman. And uh, she's going to trip Ajahn Chah up on this one. <laughs> uh, Ajahn Chah, you smiled, and he liked the question. He said, oh, he said, he said, like, uh, he said, it's like samatha is like having a potato and vipassana is like cooking it. Yeah. If you don't have a potato, you can't cook it. But if all you've got is raw potatoes, well, they're not much good, are they? Yeah, so you've got to cook it. So they go together. And he said, it's true that with samatha, yes, there's a self, there's somebody. With vipassana, there's investigation, there's no self. And then he said, when you really know the way, you're beyond self and no self. Mm. So I thought that was very helpful and perhaps giving something to, for you to um, not think about. <laughs> okay, so some of these other questions. And I, again, I want to just say it, it's just such a pleasure to have questions. I mean, this is... This is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the nicest things one can do in life is uh, listen to people's questions and talk about them. There's so much that goes on that's such a waste of time. This is, this is great. Could you share your experience, understanding of how taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha create a sense of internal safety?
Well, there's two levels, I think, one could uh, address this. Maybe to start with what comes to my mind first, uh, which is, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the most important level, and that is that when we turn to the refuges, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, in any given moment, as I said the other day, when we go for refuge in the moment, what we're doing accords with truth, with reality. Yeah. In a moment, I'm not talking about ritual process, that's, we'll talk that about, about that in a minute, but in a moment of, instead of, instead of allowing our attention to latch on or be drawn by some conditioned habit and then be biased by preference and opinion, instead of getting pulled into liking and disliking and sensations and memories and fantasies and so on, we go for refuge to the Buddha, which means that we remember to fall back into the context in which all of this experience is taking place. You know, there's all the stimulus, sight, sound, smells, taste, touches and mental impressions. That's all the stuff, all the dust of the world. But what is it that all this is taking place in? And this is, to use a metaphor. Yeah. What is the space? Mm, emphasizing this is just a metaphor. Yeah. The space is the knowing. Yeah. The awareness. So to remember that, so to turn to knowingness, to turn to awareness itself, is to go for refuge in the moment. Instead of to go into the object of sense, whether the physical or mental senses, or the object of senses, agreeable or disagreeable, you know, beautiful or ugly, pleasant or unpleasant, sight, sound, smell, taste, touches, the mental impression, all the stuff of the world. Instead of going into that, to fall back into the awareness we remember the context, we remember the perspective, and there's a chance of clear seeing, of understanding to arise. And so that's how I understand going for refuge to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha. Now when we do that at any given moment, what we're doing is according with reality. What we're doing is true. Our being is aligned with the way, with actuality, with what is. And of course it feels good. In any moment of doing that, we feel good. We feel very good. Whereas conversely, if we allow our attention to fall short of reality and we get stuck on some object or other, it's liking or disliking, you know, there's a, a memory comes up and then we become the memory and then it triggers the f past feelings and, and then we become the disappointed or sad or regretful or hopeful person. Yeah then we have a, an, a, an appropriate and, and sense of, of uh, lack of well-being because we just grabbed hold of something that was false yeah, and in, invested in it more value than it warranted. And so my experience and understanding of how to create an inner sense of safety yeah, is the word that was mentioned. Um, is to just do what's true in any given moment. And we do this ritually. 
when we when we talk about you know, we go for refuge, we talk about our going for refuge to the Buddha, the sarana. Nati me saranang anyang, buddho me saranang warang, etena satchawa jina soti me onto sapada. So I go for refuge to the Buddha. Nati me saranang anyang, buddho me saranang warang. The Buddha is my only refuge. Etena satchawa jina. By this statement of fact, etena satchawa jina soti me onto sapada. May I be safe and secure. And we make this asseveration of truth. We make this uh, with Dhamma, with Sangha. And likewise, in this, uh, with others, Nati me saranang anyang, buddho me saranang warang, e tena satchavajina soti te hontu sapada. By this statement of fact, may they be safe and, and well. It's a, a way of generating blessings for others. And personally, I believe in this uh, very strongly and, and, and practice it myself regularly, every day. First thing every day, I make this statement of commitment to the refuges and and uh, and with a trust that this com- this commitment actually uh, aligns the heart and mind with that which is real and generates a context of feeling safe. Yeah, it does, yeah. and the ritual also has its place. You know, because we're bowing down in front of that which symbolises. Uh, Perfect wisdom and compassion, the Buddha image and the teaching, and the spiritual community. Uh, as we make this gesture of bowing three times and, and aligning ourselves with things, well, then little by little it nourishes this within ourselves. So, so whether it's being done in the moment as a turning to awareness, or whether it's being done as a ritual, yeah, it's a very skillful way of of um, Generating sense of safety, and also on, a, on, on another, from another perspective, to make a conscious, to make conscious our uh, commitment to the triple gem. People will sometimes people will uh, be very hesitant to commit themselves to being Buddhists and say, "Well, I don't want to say I'm a Buddhist." I like the teachings, but I don't want to say I'm a Buddhist. And, well, I can understand that because there's all sorts of things that false religion and uh, so on that um, you know, when one can be disinclined to, to making a statement can feel like you're being exclusive of others. And, and these days that's not you know, very proper and, uh, and we don't want to hurt anybody by being exclusive and so on. Well, that's, you know, that's understandable to a certain point. However... There is a lot to be gained by aligning ourselves with a particular teacher and teaching and tradition. And I don't want to rabbit on about my opinions on the subject too much, just to say that that, that is a, a view and it's worth considering. And, and if you do it and you try it, well, then you'll discover. And it doesn't have to be exclusive. It doesn't have to be because one commits oneself to a particular path of practice that one's rejecting or being disrespectful to other paths of practice. And so to make quite conscious our trust in the Buddha. So he was a human being who lived on planet Earth, like all of us, 2,500 something years ago, who suffered, who had problems with his father, didn't get on. You know, his father wanted him to be king and he didn't want to be a king or a chief or whatever and he didn't want to be a chief and and probably had a few argy-bargies with his wife and he had a kid and 
had to deal with money and had to go to school and college and all the rest of it. And you know, he was a human being who also, when confronted with the unpleasant side of life, um, symbolically presented in the tradition as, as seeing an old person, a sick person, a dead person, that when uh, this human being around the age of 29 kind of was faced with the raw reality of the fact that this is not a wonderful thing we're involved with, it's got some nice moments, but actually it's also pretty unpleasant on many levels, in many ways, that uh, he got very disillusioned and was inspired at that point. The inspiration arose with him, is there a way out? Is there a way of resolving this? There's not, you know, how can I forget about it and, and have, 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 you know, indulge even more in sensuality, which he was obviously very good at doing already. Uh, how can, is there a way of understanding, is there a way to freedom that I can learn for myself and for all beings? It was a very altruistic aspiration that he had. And he engaged this, and um, because of the context of uh, culture of India at the time, it was actually quite okay for him to leave his wife and kid. That's something that's part of the story doesn't go down very well these days, but given the culture of the time, it uh, wasn't quite as bad as it sounds. Um, and he went off and with a committed, uh, consistent, skillful effort for five years, gave himself into uh, a very intense practice until he realized. And so here's a human being who suffered and who realized freedom from suffering and then who's, who gave these teachings. These teachings have been practiced and have been questioned, have been challenged, um, attacked, undermined everything for over two and a half thousand years now and yet they're still here they're still working and so what i'm doing here is just saying that you know there this is a this is an actual this is not just a philosophical argument this is something that's been lived by millions and millions and millions of people here on planet earth and just to be conscious of this you know to uh, we're aligning ourselves with a way it, it actually it affects us to do this, it affects our minds to know we're part of a spiritual community, which is, you know, which is uh, goes right across the world. Uh, well, I'm not sure how many Buddhists there are in Iran. Um, there might be some there, but basically they're all over the place, and they have been for a very long time. And we're part of the spiritual community, which is why I mentioned it at the beginning of this retreat. It really helps to know that as human beings, suffering, flesh and blood human beings who, who wake up in the morning not feeling so good and who get indigestion and, and who get irritated with other people and so on, that, that still we're part of a spiritual community that wants to turn this around, turn this suffering around, the everyday suffering we experience, and to realize wisdom and compassion. We're not avoiding it. We're not indulging it. We trust in what the Buddha called the middle way. He discovered the middle way, which goes between indulgence and denial. And so to make this quite conscious, in my experience and my understanding of the, the training, is a very effective way of, of generating an inner sense of safety. We feel we belong. Very skillful, something that we can, we can dare to do. Another aspect of this is that there is no aspect of the Dhamma teaching that cannot be questioned. Uh, the Buddha said this is an open-handed teaching, uh, I assume that at the time there was the opposite, the closed fist tradition, which was initiation was only given to those selected, elite, chosen few who happened to be born in a certain caste or get privileged access to the guru or something, and they got the real teaching. 
and the rest of the plebs only got the second-rate stuff, whereas uh, the Buddha made it very clear this teaching is for everybody, uh, all races, all genders, all ages. And there are no questions that you're not allowed to ask. Yeah. So uh, fundamentalism does come into it. When Buddhism becomes fundamentalist, well, it's become distorted. Yeah. Understanding that one of the characteristics of fundamentalism is there's all sorts of no-go areas. Yeah. One of the two telltale signs of fundamentalism, one is that there's all sorts of questions you're not allowed to ask. And two is they tend to come up with simplistic solutions to complex problems. And these two things certainly don't pertain to the Buddha's teachings. There are no no-go areas. And uh, the Buddha didn't shy away from complex questions. He, he gave some very, very complex answers uh, accordingly. So hopefully that's, that's uh, of some help to the person who asked that question in terms of how to use these refuges as a way of generating a sense of, of inner safety and security. There's a question here that says, you have often commented on the key challenge and importance of holding emotions, but how can I, we, distinguish doing this versus dogged endurance? I worry about this as enduring has been a trap for me in the past. Enduring highlighted there. Okay, well, one of the things to say about endurance is that it's something that we need to uh, refine. Um, patient endurance, uh, not a not something that you hear advertised very much these days. <laughs> Your lifestyle coach probably doesn't encourage you. Might do. Um, I know in my own case, when I was uh, living in the monasteries in Thailand the first five years, and, and you hear this a lot, autun, autun. This is the, 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 the word for endurance. Quam autun. Autun. You have to be willing to go without things and endure things. And, and in the northeast of Thailand, they're real tough nuts, these guys. I mean, they're really, you know, there's no room for sissies in the northeast of Thailand. Ajahn Chah's insistence on sitting up all night, once a week. I mean, and uh, as, as I probably said before, you know, some of them would actually sit up every night. They would never lie down, never lie down. They just, they just don't lie down. They would sit up. Nisijik Vata is one of the ascetic practices uh, encouraged by the Buddha. And, and some of these monks would actually do this uh, because it enhances mindfulness. So when you, you rest only as much as you need and then when you wake up, your mindfulness is much stronger and clearer. And, and the one meal a day and very, very simple food. And, and uh, So when we were taught, taught about patient endurance, it, it came across... Uh, with a pretty tough edge to it. And some of us picked it up in a very tough way. But after a few years of, of um, actually indulging what the Buddha, most specifically in his very first teaching, spoke out against, which was atagilamatana yogo, which is self-mortification. Uh, uh, self-mortification says there's a dead end. 
a complete dead end. The two dead ends, he says, Kama Sukhanikani Yogo and Atagilamatani Yogo. The two extremes, essential indulgence, indulgence in pleasure and indulgence in pain, basically. These are kind of two alternatives that heedless, ignorant human beings tend to flip-flop between. Indulging in pleasure and then getting depressed and indulging in that. Indulging in pain. So you flip-flop between these two. And you see, both of them are complete dead end. They won't get you any. There's no point in indulging in pleasure and there's no point in indulging in depression or pain or misery. Rather, establish the heart and mind in, in an awareness which is able to reflect on the unsatisfactory, impermanent, not-self nature of all the conditions. And so after several years of having indulged in Atakilamatana Yoga or self-mortification, I realized, well, actually, this is... I didn't hear anybody talk about bitter endurance. Ajahn Chah never used the word bitter endurance. He's talking about patient endurance. And so that was something I added to it. And so, you know, it took me a few years, and there's no problem with that. You know, it takes us a while to get the message. Um, So uh, whoever's asking this question, this might also apply, that you say that uh, I worry about this because enduring has been a trap for me in the past. Now, has it been real patient, mindful endurance, bearing with something, understanding that sometimes things take time, and sometimes we have to be willing to burn through our resistance to what we're encountering. Uh, Some teacher, I'm not sure who it was, made the comment that some things you see through and some things you burn through. Who was that? Yeah, yeah. But I think it's true. I mean, some things just pop up and you, you see them. Other things, they pop up and you sort of see them, but there's a lot of burning, a lot of burning before you really see them. And this is where it takes patient endurance. In India, you'll see these sadhus going around, standing on the head, standing on the one leg, getting around like animals, not wearing clothes, doing all sorts of things they call tapas or austerities. The word tapa actually means fire. In other words, what you do is you frustrate the momentum of my way until the passions flare up and then you hold it. Bearing in mind what I spoke about last night, the transformation of carbon dust into diamonds, the heat is needed. The pressure is needed to actually dissolve the structures of avoidance or the habits of ignorance. The momentum of my way, the whole body-mind is conditioned by it. Give me, I want. Take, have. Me, I got. Now I'm happy, now I want more. That's me. And this body-mind is conditioning. It's like, you know, you sit there before the meal. Very impressed with how everybody sits there, nobody jumps up straight away. As soon as I ring the bell, I expect you all to jump up and rush out and get your food. And nobody's doing it. I'm very impressed. Everybody sits there, very mindful, waiting to see who's going to jump up first. <laughs> I try not to look. <laughs> but uh, it's good not to jump up. You know, you watch it, you see, start, start salivating. You know, you see the monks sitting there eating, you know, smelling the food, and you start salivating. You say, what's salivating for? You haven't got any food anywhere near you yet. What are you salivating for? The body's conditioned by me getting what I want and I'm ready for it and I don't want to wait and yeah. interesting to watch. Mm. Or you can be watching television, you're watching a movie 
there's actually nothing happening. You're just in an empty room with this box flicking away in front of you and something, you know, something happens and you're having an emotional reaction. For goodness sake, what are you having an emotional reaction for? There's nothing happening. It's just this little electronic flicker going on across the other side of the room. I mean, even if there's a big flicker, you know, big screens these days, there's still there's nothing actually happening. But we're having this intense emotional reaction. You know, watching Gladiator, Russell Crowe flexing his muscles, he takes out another monster. <laughs> he, you know, all the other awful things that go on. Yeah. What is it? This body-mind is conditioned. And so to, to become free from this conditioning, it takes energy. And... That energy is partly generated by restraint, by focus, but also by patient endurance. You know, patient endurance is another way of talking about that container. That's an element of uh, the transformation process. You know, to, how, to, how to actually bear with something, how to hold something until it's time. If you want to use a botanical example, you can talk about you know, growing um, plants. You know, our hedge down there, you see our hedge down at the retreat house and uh, the process of um, putting in the new sewerage system. Sometimes it was the builders and sometimes it was the cows in the field next door, but basically there's some big holes in our beach hedge. And so David and I went out recently and, and acquired some nice new plants to put in there. He put these nice new plants in but they're not five foot tall like the beach hedge. They're only 18 inches tall. So you put them in, they've got a safety guard around them and a stick, and you water them and look at them, and nothing happening. You, know, you would pay good money for these. So, you know, I think I have a look, check to see if the roots are there. You pull the thing out and look at the roots. <laughs> so, you know, maybe it's still alive, so you stuff it back in again and you know, wait for another week, and nothing much happening. I pull it out again, look at the roots. Well, they're not completely dead. They stuff it back in again. Well, you're pretty unintelligent, isn't it? What's the remedy? What's the remedy? Waiting. Waiting's the remedy. Waiting's another way of talking about patient endurance. Yeah, we have to wait for the right time. And so for the transformation to take place with regards to the deluding, defiling, distorted, polluting passions that we... Uh, are attacked by whether desire or passionate greed or sadness or disappointment or anger. Yeah. We can sort of see through them, but there's, this, there's energy associated with them. So, yes, there's mindfulness. Well, I'm mindful. I'm watching. Yeah, I can see it. I can feel it. I'm sweating. My pulse rate's gone up. Why can't I let go? Well, there's a dynamic to this. You know, the fact that I want to let go is part of the reason that letting go is not happening. There's this big me trying to let go actually is part of the resistance. That's part of the habit of clinging. There's me who thinks they've got a problem with anger or me who thinks they have to let go is actually another symptom of the clinging. If there is no clinging, actually there's no me. And before we get that message, sometimes it does have to be a tremendous ordeal, uh, a tremendous burning. And so this is where we talk about patient endurance. But 
it can't be over overstated how it's patient endurance. It's mindful, patient, kind endurance. Uh, when, we, when we are engaging in this work, as I mentioned last night in the investigation of, of uh, anatta, you know, it's done in the context of the Brahma Viharas, you know, with loving kindness established, with compassion established in our hearts. Then we can endure. But we don't run the risk of self-mortification, kicking it. I'm such a lousy slob, I deserve to suffer. Now, you, you might think, oh, I don't think that. But, you know, on subtle levels, we can be carrying that sort of conditioning you know, for a very long time. Um, for a very long time, we can carry the view that I'm unworthy. If it was bred into us, if we drank it in with our mother's milk, which can well be the case. Uh, if our mother felt out that way about herself, then you can drink it in and you can uh, assimilate the self-view that you're very unworthy. This is not just psychobabble. And it can be there for so long that you don't even notice it with clarity. So with patient endurance, we're not uh, rushing to have insights we're not rushing to let go. We're willing, humbly, respectfully, bearing with the process. And if it's associated with loving kindness, with compassion, well, then I don't think we have to worry about the old conditioning um, kicking in. Well, it's always a risk. There's always a chance. But we can keep checking. So I think that's probably enough for this evening. Thank you very much for your attention. Mm-hmm.